This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. A, uh, essentially 12th, um, 12th century <clears throat> Chan monk by the name of Hongji on Jing Jue, um, known as in Japanese often as Tendo Shogaku because he was actually an abbot at uh, Tiantong Tendo Monastery where Dogen studied, right? And he's he's tremendously famous. He he was sort of one of the great proponents of the silent illumination school and and you know highly scholarly and so on. And he compiled this collection of koans and um, it would have languished except that about a hundred, well, not hundred, but maybe 75 years later or something, I thought um, uh, this guy named Wansong Xingqiu uh, came along, who's generally just um, referred to in Japanese as Bansho, um, and decided to um, make a book out of it and put commentaries on them and so on and so forth. And um, the interesting thing is it, it was published in about 1224, right when Dogen was traveling in China, which is kind of in, intriguing, right? It's like, it was kind of, it's, it was probably kind of like a bestseller, you know, when, when, when Dogen was wandering around China and picking up the, uh, Picking up the the Zen teachings, and you know who knows he was he, uh, you know probably you know like it probably printed hundreds of copies, <laughs> and uh, and so who knows if it was a an influence on on Dogen or not, but um, he did also you know, on, on his departure from China, compile a, um, a set of um, hundred koans and then spent the entire rest of his career commenting on them. So interesting, interesting, intriguing point. Um, so case five goes like this. Um, uh, there's a earlier sort of Tang Dynasty uh, Chan teacher by the name of uh, Qing Yuan. And a monk once asked him a question that if you translate it, it essentially boils down to, what's the whole point of Buddhism? <laughs> it's, it's something like, you know, the the actual text is something like what's the what's the great meaning of buddha dharma um but um interestingly clary translated as you know what's the what's the great meaning of buddhism and in some ways he's saying like you know tell me the you know you know skip everything just tell me this the main point please right and um and Wan says the price of rice in Luling, um, which, as I understand it, there's a couple of different um, 
towns or villages called Luling. And, and I, my, my understanding is that this one is, is, a, is a sort of larger one that then that went on to become a, a modern day town, but it used to be called Luling, basically. Um, and, you know, so it's a very short koan and, 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 and to the point, right? Um, and like all good cons, it's, it says at least three things at once, right? And there's, there's a whole um, kind of trope in the commentary of literature around cons that say that they have three, they, the, the really skillful teachers, in particular yin men, um, who's kind of the star of the Blue Cliff Records can say three things at once. And the, they're usually categorized as the, the phrase that follows the waves, the phrase that um, covers heaven and earth and the phrase that cuts off the myriad streams, right? Um, and a little bit more, um, or a little bit less cryptic, right? Generally speaking, I think, um, the phrase that follows the waves mostly has to do with the with the conduct and and kind of interaction and um, mirroring that takes place in the context of an exchange like most koans are right um, the phrase that that covers heaven and earth is usually associated with the sort of conceptual and poetic content of the of the discussion or con you know, of or statements, right? And the phrase that cuts off the myriad streams is like how it sounds. It's like okay, enough talk, <laughs> basically, and then enough thinking too. Just to, and you know, some schools emphasize. One more than the other. The um, the Rinzai school seems to lean pretty hard into the the phrase that cuts off the myriad streams interpretation. But uh, if you read Dogen's commentaries on koans and in particular his koans, he he um, brings out a lot of poetic and conceptual content, and you know explains and interprets and so on. And they're and they're both good, right? Um, and talks about how the teachers um, who engaged in these exchanges were helpful, right? So, um, so I, my my sense is that Qin Yuan also delivered three answers at once. Um, the the first answer, you know, I mean, if you if you look at if you look at the exchange, what's the great meaning of Buddhism, right? Like the the clearly the well, you know. So I I used to know this guy, great guy. He he studied here. And then he, he went to Japan and he spent a lot of time studying in Japan. And he, uh, he, he lived at Antaiji for a while. And 
when I was at Tassajara, he would send me, um, uh, you know, letters, I think, because he was kind of, you know, hungry for exchange with people in the States. And he would, they would say things like, there's three meters of snow outside my cabin at Ontaji. <laughs> I mean, he was he was really kind of living the life, right? And and when he when he came back, we were talking about it, and he said, you know, I had this unbelievably romanticized idea about about um, going to Japan and living the temple life, right? And you can kind of see a little bit of of you know that that you know, romanticizing in the question of the, um, of this, of the student of the monk, right? The, he's like, I'm living in this monastery now with this famous um, Chan teacher. I'm going to ask him this question and he's going to really explain the whole thing to me. And, and then everything is going to be great. Right. And, and so one interpretation, one, one lens through which you can look at, at, um, at the answer is just cutting off myriad streams. It's like, okay, drop all that stuff. It, here's here's a um, here's a piece of flavorless talk that um, that totally sidesteps and shuts down your question, right? Um, and there are other cons that are kind of like this. There's a you know, Yunmin was once asked a similar question, and he just said cake <laughs> which I mean, i'm not totally clear on whether he was just hungry or 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 you know feeling like a he needed a carbo hit or something like that but anyway um but if you look if you look a little deeper right there's actually there's actually some something lurking under the surface there. Like the, if you look at ex, the expression, the price of rice in, in Luling, I don't really, I don't know this to be true, but there are, there are, um, there are phrases in English that have very much the same flavor, right? L literally, since we're talking about food here. Um, and they almost all have to do with food, interestingly enough. Um, like out here growing up, where I grew up, um, when when you're having a conversation with somebody and they say something that feels irrelevant and and maybe overly abstract or highfalutin or something like that, you say, what does that have to do with the price of eggs, right? And maybe that's because I lived in Petaluma, which used to be the um, the chicken capital of the world, right? But that's what that's what you'd say, right? And I've since heard that in the Midwest, people say, what does that have to do with the price of corn? And there's even an older version that that's from the UK that resonates kind of oddly with the story um, uh, at hand, which is what does that have to do with the price of tea in China, right? Um, and almost always what they're, what the, the price of some food item thing is intended to focus the discussion back on the concrete, the everyday, and the sort of brass tacks, right? Um, and and you know, so here you have this guy um, going, "Woo, great meaning of Buddhism," and and uh, and 
and Ching Yuan brings up the price of rice in Lu Ling, but you'll note that he kind of flips it on its head because he doesn't say, what does it have to do with the price of rice in Lu Ling? He says, the great meaning of Buddhism is the price of rice in Lu Ling, right? So he's saying, yeah, let's talk about the everyday, let's talk about the brass tacks, but the meaning of, the great meaning of Buddhism is the brass tacks. And it's worth digging into that a little bit more. Like, if you were to look at Buddhism and the teachings of the Buddha as as a, as a you know like multi-decade exposition of a solution to a particular problem, right? The, um, it's worth asking what the problem is. And, and the, way, the way the Buddhist teachings are typically expounded, the people say that the problem was stated in his first talk, right? The one where he, ex he, expounds the Four Noble Truths, right? And so the, and in some ways, the problem statement in that formulation is life is suffering or, you know, in life there is suffering depending on how you, uh, on how you translate it. And that that suffering arises from grasping an aversion or um, attachment and so on. And that's okay, but it's kind of, it's already one level of abstraction up from what the real problem is. And the real problem is this, people make a horrible mess of things all the time, right? And, and, it, and if that wasn't clear by the time of the Buddha or wasn't clear by the time uh, they were writing down this stuff in the Song Dynasty, it's really clear now. <laughs> I mean, we are so making a mess of things. Um, and and that 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 messiness, that that um constantly, you know, well, acting out of well. You could say that the way that aligns with the first and second noble truths is that humans make a mess of things and they they make a mess of things largely out of their dissatisfaction and suffering, right? Um, and their their desire to avoid that suffering and dissatisfaction and their desire to um, uh, avoided either by by grasping after things that that um appear to offer relief or um avoiding things that they think are going to cause them suffering right so so the two things align but but the main the main problem is that people are just constantly screwing it up right um and more to the point, they're screwing it up by exercising the, the capacities that make 
them human, right? By exercising their, um, you know, agency and um, and capacity for planning and their capacity for um, large-scale, multi-layered sociality and you know, rich, complex, and and highly symbolicated language, right? So, and 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 the the two ways in which that most frequently arises is it, it either arises out of ignorance, their their inability to see what's going on, or out of a willful, a kind of willful ignorance that a lot that arises out of their grasping and aversion, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Buddhism. If if you wanted to, if you wanted to, you know, like if 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 um, the monk asked me, "What's the point of Buddhism?" I'd say, "That's the point." <laughs> And that that the teaching of the Buddha's lifetime is um, is a vast array of of examples, discourses, lists, you know, um, uh, rubrics, and so on, whereby the, our tendency to to mess everything up is. Um, ameliorated or even kind of suppressed, alleviated, gotten rid of. <laughs> um, and there's a bunch of them, right? And and they and you know obviously not all these things not all of these things were said by the buddha but they were said in some ways in the in the buddha's name there's the you know 12 fold chain of causation but there's also the brahma viharas and there's also the um the the paramitas and and so on and so forth but the one i i wanted to talk about um in this context is the metta sutta right um and it's the great thing about the Metta Sutta, I've realized, is that it really is incredibly straightforward. It says, this is what you should do, <laughs> right? And then it says, and it has three major components. It, it's, it says, it talks about conduct. It says, be strenuous, upright, and sincere, right? Mm, that's good. And then a few other things, without pride, easily contented and joyous, right? Don't, you know, don't be ambitious. Don't chase riches. Don't even do it for your family. Amazing, right? Um, so that's one component is the content component or the conduct component. Um, and then it has this, this, this kind of intention and aspiration component so it's to, in order to support that conduct right the you need to have a kind of a frame of intention and aspiration right and the and, and the the 
and it says, here's what you should keep in mind, right? Here's, here should be your frame. Um, may all beings be happy. May they be safe. Um, doesn't matter what kind of beings they are. They, they should be happy. And then it's interesting. He kind of, the author kind of, you know, strays back into conduct, but in a kind of aspirational way, it's like, not only should they be happy, but why shouldn't everyone essentially conduct themselves in this way? And in, in, in accordance with the precepts, not lying, um, not harboring ill will, et cetera, right? Not harming. Um, and those, those, those are good, right? Um, and then sprinkled throughout the description of this, um, this both this way of being and this way of holding um, a frame, an aspirational frame, right? Um, they talk about they talk about quality of mind, right? So um, it says your mind should be boundless. Hmm. What exactly does that mean? Um, no mind is boundless. Right? We're we're all um, bottled up in this body, right? Um, and the you know I remember the. Um, my neuroscience teacher in grad school, um, you know, kind of had a standard list of limitations. You're like, you you can't see X-rays. You're not directly aware of the operations of your cerebellum, and you know, and sort of like that, right? Um, we we have a we have a very um, very limited view of the universe, a very limited contact with it that has to do with our exact position in the world and how we're um, constituted, right? But nonetheless, the, the, the sutta says, boundless mind right so what could that possibly mean i my sense is that it's that it's this right um we live in this we live in this way and we could you could argue about what the limits of mind are right like it, i you know when i hear a car does my mind extend out to the you know um, out to the car, yeah, maybe. How how boundless is that? Well, you know, it's a few hundred yards. Right? That's good. Um, when, when I pick up something from a um, from a friend in high school and carry it around with me, uh, an idea or a thought or a phrase, um, and I carry it around with me for the rest of my life, how boundless is their mind, right? I'm pretty boundless, but nonetheless, um, not infinite. But but we make up 
so many boundaries, conditions, um, scales of length, scales of importance, and so on and so forth, and we and we live by them, right? Um, we attach to them and and nurture them and polish them and fiddle with them and so on um, ceaselessly, right? Um, comment on them and. I think that's the stuff that that this is talking about, right? Um, there's a there's a phrase in the um, Bodhisattva vow that says Dharma gates are boundless, right? And if you look at the 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 character that's being negated in the in the um, Chinese version of the Bodhisattva vow, it really is a character that means measurement, right? Um, in other words, boundless is great, but what what it's really saying is that it's, a, it's saying immeasurable, both in the sense of immeasurably small, immeasurably large, um, immeasurably complex, et cetera, right? So just to, just to, to drop that or or hold lightly our tendency to do that in a way that that's beneficial right um and then it also says um not holding to fixed views again right um can we live without views no of course not we have everybody has views we're the uh, the word view is just a way of talking about something that's not only fundamental to human life, but fundamental to life. I mean, the, the basis of life is essentially memory and the, the transposition of information that's been accumulated in the past into the present in order to have an effect on the future. That's, that's what life does. And it has since it was being put together in hydrothermal vents, you know, what is it? Three and a half billion years ago or something like that. Right. Um, and the, and when, when we do that, it, um, because it's doing in doing it, we're doing it in the light of this, of consciousness, right. Um, it, you know, it's when, we're, because we're, we're producing a mental formation in the light of consciousness as a result of perception, essentially, right? Um, we think of it as a view. Um, and, and again, we can't, we can't live without that. But um, the sutta says fixed views, right? And, and, what fixes our views? Well, it's it's attachment to knowing, right? And it's the emotional underpinnings of those views that which might which are often very um, powerful, right? Um, it's easy to hold a view of a particular person, group of people, um, thing, whatever that's powerfully driven by negative or positive emotion and then of various sorts and really it has a tremendous effect on our lives right and if you if you want an example of that playing out 
in a domain where none of this should have been a problem, right? Look at history of science and maybe like particularly the history of geology or something like that. It was such a wrangle. Like people had these ideas and they sounded good. And everyone was like, that's a great idea. It sounds so good. And then they, people would cling to it for hundreds of years and or easily, actually, yes, hundreds of years in spite of this, you know, mountain literally of evidence to the contrary, right? Um, we do that all the time, right? Um, except we, we don't do it quite as badly usually as the 19th century geologists, but, you know, honestly, it's, it's a thing, right? So again, the, the, the request is not to not have views. We'd have to essentially um, scoop out huge portions of our brain not to have views, and that would be bad. But, but to, to, um, to hold them in this, in this way that, that doesn't, um, uh, fix them that does that isn't attached that allows them to be flexible and and to and to, and to be met skillfully and comfortably right um, and and then it says and well it's the the sitta says endowed with insight but in any case open to insight right um which is to say, open to a situation in which information comes in either from the world or from, from the outer world or from the inner world and, and meets your views, your conceptual frame, and, and changes are made, right? Be, to be open to that, to allow reality to meet your conceptual framework, right? Um, Often those moments where that insight happens are startling, delightful, or terrifying. Right? But but to to allow them and to appreciate what's just happened when you have a moment of insight. Right. Um, so that's the that's the prescription. That among other things is the prescription for the mind with which you support exemplary conduct. And an, an exemplary aspirational frame for um, practice, right? Um, and all of those things are are practiced in sazen, right? But um, in particular, the last one is right. Um, it's it's possible to for example, engage in exemplary conduct in a thoroughly performative way, right? Like, um, I'm going to, I'm in, in a transactional way, I'm going to engage in exemplary conduct because um, I'm going to get something for it, right? Mm. And, you know, and it's possible to, to cling so tightly to an aspirational framework that, um, you don't realize that you're missing the boat, right? And, and that's why, for example, Suzuki Roshi says, sit with no gaining idea, right? Because um, th that aspirational framework can be a, a 
support and it can also be a hindrance, right? And and so to in order to to clarify the relationship between those things, the we practice a particular kind of uh, that we a particular kind of mind, right? Uh, we bring forth a particular kind of mind while sitting and then while standing and walking and lying down, but initially while sitting. And then, you know, the, the usual trajectory is you start practicing and then after a while, you, these things start to show up, right? These, the, these mental events start to show up that, that show a little bit of what it's like actually to have a boundless mind or a mind that's, um, that's open to insight, right? And initially it seems pretty special and it seems um, uh, that the circumstances and, and procedures that you went through in order to, to have that moment are pretty special too. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, oh my God, I've, you know, it's a little bit like um, being a, you know, baseball player and you, you, people say that baseball players are, are superstitious because, you know, if they go out and they do something good, they think, well, let's see, what kind of hat was I wearing? <laughs> and how was I wearing my hat? And, and uh, was, was my, you know, was this, there was the glove on my left hand, um, you know, laced up or loose, right? And they kind of they they kind of build this this um, uh, this set of attributes of the ideal situation. We do that with practice too. Believe me, right? I think we all do it, right? Um, but over time, that stuff softens up, and 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 what comes to the fore is just the everydayness of it, the, um, the moment to moment experience of continuous practice. Um, and then it doesn't feel so special anymore. And it's, but it also allows the, the baseline of that mind to show up, which is a mind of unconditioned appreciation and gratitude. Um, I have no idea what time it is. Does anybody, anybody have an idea? Four till? Thank you. Okay, I have four minutes to cover the last answer. <laughs> um, and it's this, right? Um, I, the other night I was talking about this with, with Yaz and I asked somebody, or I asked the group, um, so what are the factors that govern the price of rice in Luling? And somebody said, the weather. <laughs> Which is exactly right, right? And 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 even better, um, the weather and the 
the mood of the merchants and and the diligence or non-diligence of the farmers and the um the you know the 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 breeding habits of various species of bugs and you know and the big bang right and and you know this, so there was this big bang and it made a bunch of particles and the particles eventually coalesced in various ways and became uh, among other things carbon and it flew through the through, flew through space and it collected and then there was this incredibly complicated process whereby by whereby life living things converted our world into a world that could grow rice right um and and so in the end the the price of rice in luling depends on everything and the and and everything depends on the price of rice in luling right it's a it, it's it's a view into into emptiness and um interdependent co-arising right and we can sometimes glimpse if we allow it if we allow that insight to arise the the truth of that in ways that are that are surprising and delightful so i mean so i have a story like that so you know about a year and a half ago i was hiking on mount tam and I maybe I've already told this story, but anyway, um, walking on the west side and there the the trail on the west side kind of goes out on these ridges where it's quite bare and the views are really spectacular, and then goes back into these creek valleys and nips into these little tiny pocket-sized forests, right? Um, and then comes out again like this. And at one point, I I walked around a ridge and down into this forest and it was a season when there were when there was a lot of bird migration going on and and there was a moment where i walked into the forest and the forest was full literally full stuffed full of these little tiny birds right and they were all chirping to each other like and um and this thing happened where my because of because well when i was receptive and two because it was such a remarkable sensory experience that my brain lit up with a with a three-dimensional picture of the forest that i was standing in right because you could hear the shape of the forest in the in the songs of the birds the the world reaches in and kind of grabs a hold, right? Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. 
Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.